All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. If we haven't met, my name is Brad. I'm one of the elders here. And before we dive into the scriptures, I want to give you just a brief update on our meeting location. If you're new to Mercy Hill Church, probably don't know our history. Uh, we began as a church here in Midtown uh, about eight years ago. And we just began in a living room, inviting a few friends to come in on, I believe it was a Tuesday night, and to try to answer the question, what would it look like if followers of Jesus had a vision for seeing the gospel impact all of their everyday life? Not just Sundays, but that they would be on mission for Jesus full-time as a missionary, happen to get paid by another company maybe, but that we would all see ourselves as full-time followers of Jesus, missionaries for Him, who are making disciples in the everyday stuff of life throughout Memphis. Not in Africa, not in India, unless God calls us there, but that we would be missionaries here. And we started with that vision, and we now have several missional communities with the hope of multiplying to many more. And we rent this space on Sundays, we said that we don't want Sunday morning to be the pinnacle of who we are. 95% of our programming is not going to point towards Sunday morning. And 90% and of what we do is not going to be getting ready for, for this meeting. Because the gospel impacts six other days of the week. And so what does it look like for us as followers to, of Jesus to really see that take place? And so we're part of the Soma family of churches. And we're committed to this missional community structure of disciple making. And within that, we've also said that we do need to gather because we want to celebrate all of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's doing in our lives because lives are intersecting all throughout the week. Last night, we were several of us were here for a quinceanera for uh, a young gal that's um, been adopted recently into a family, and this place was filled with celebration and party and dance and good times, and that's just one little example of how our lives are always interacting throughout the week, and so we need to gather on Sundays to, to celebrate that, to know how the gospel's influencing us. And uh, we've outgrown this space. Uh, that's been clear. Not only do we need more space for adults, but even much more so we need more space for kiddos. And the Lord has been really gracious. And so our partnership with um, an individual who has bought Trinity Methodist Church on Evergreen continues to move along. You can pray for a man named Carl who has bought that property. I had a conversation with him early last week. He is working on a lease for us. And I'm really encouraged. I'm humbled by the way in which God has put it on his heart to structure this lease. We could never afford this 1925 um, sanctuary uh, designed by the same architect who designed the Pink Palace, beautiful limestone exterior, um, beautiful stained glass windows, Tiffany stained glass from 1925 with a working pipe organ in it. We could never sustain that type of facility with a vision of a church that's interested in making disciples and being in relationship with people and being on mission throughout the week. We could never sustain that on our own. And Carl has gotten to know me and some of you and God has put it on his heart to offer us and structure a deal in such a way that it's affordable to us. 
and uh, that we can meet there and have six classrooms for kids and office space and all that will be ours throughout the week and then have access to that space on Sunday mornings. And so um, I'm as confident as ever that God is at work and that our trust is in him. So continue to pray for God. Um, Pray for Carl, that God would continue to put it on his heart to complete this lease and to get it to us and then pray that our elders would have wisdom in the way that we review it and our attorney in the way that we structure it. And I hope to have good news for you in, in a week or two. So continue to pray along with us. First uh, Samuel chapter 28. Let me invite you to turn there in your Bibles. We've been studying the life of David. And today we're going to take a little bit of a turn. We're actually not going to be looking at the life of David. Instead we're going to be looking at the, at the life of Saul. I wonder if you took a moment to consider as you're turning in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 28. Take a moment and consider uh, what would you want your epitaph to be? What would you want that one line written on your tombstone to read? It's pretty heavy, isn't it? Stop and think for a moment. There will likely be a day where friends and loved ones will be gathered in a room and You'll be there, but you won't be there. And they'll be talking about you. They'll read an obituary in which someone has tried, they've made an attempt to sum up the legacy of your life. What do you hope that legacy would be? Even more difficult, try putting it in in a one-liner. Well, I found a few of my favorite tombstones, and um, I think I've got a couple on the screen for you. My first one is, I told you I was sick. <laughs> that person had the last word, didn't they? <laughs> Second one says, near this spot, Samuel Whitmore, then 80 years old, killed three British soldiers, April 19th, 1776. He was shot, bayoneted, beaten, and left for dead, but recovered and lived to be 98 years of age. He won. Robert Clay Allison, this one's a little darker, 1840 to 1887. He never killed a man that did not need killing. All right, well, it's clear. This last one, we'll hashtag it dad joke. I made some good deals and I made some bad ones. I really went in the hole with this one. Michael Eichner, that one's for you. We can laugh at some of these tombstones, but... There really is something heavy about considering the weight of our lives. What will be the weight of of your life lived? What will be the legacy that you leave behind? What do you hope it will be? In the way that it relates to family? In the way that it relates to God? In the way that it relates to, did you make a difference for eternity, not only in your life, but in the life of others? The passage that we look at today is an opportunity for us to see both in David's life and in Saul's life what their epitaph will read. They're both facing very defining moments. And in a sense, chapters 28 and then chapters 29 and 30 are a contrast in two men's lives. David is a bodyguard. For the opposing king, if you will remember where we left David last week, David went his own way. He went astray. He wrote God out of his story. 
And he finds himself as a bodyguard for the king of Gath, who is the king of all the Philistines. And David is now placed, he has found himself backed into a corner in one of the most awkward positions that he could find himself. He is expected not only to kill his own fellow soldiers amongst the Israelites, but to be a bodyguard to their enemy. And now we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 28 and we see that Saul is shaking in fear because of the enemy force he's facing. He has no guidance from the Lord. He seeks the Lord and receives no answer because he has turned away from the Lord and the Lord has turned away from him. And here's what makes this story so unique. Here's what makes it a contrast in two lives. The first life, God says, no, I will not answer. In the second life, God answers. Both men cry out to God. Only one does God answer. The big idea that we're going to see in this text is this. Jesus rescues us from sin, not from circumstances. Jesus rescues us from sin, not from circumstances. The difference between the two is all of eternity. My fear is that many religious people, particularly in the South especially in the West, have the syndrome, what I would call the syndrome of Saul that we're going to see in this passage today. They approach God asking him to bless them, asking God to fix their lives on their terms, all the while never yielding their hearts to Jesus. We're going to see that played out in Saul's life. Look with me beginning in verse 3 of chapter 28. It's where we left off last week. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. If you summed up King Saul's life, In 11 words, they could be found in chapter 26 in verse 11. I'm sorry, in verse 21. Behold, I have acted foolishly, and I have made a great mistake. Behold, I have acted foolishly and made a great mistake. Saul's mistake was that he refused to surrender to God. But instead... He continually sought the Lord for rescue from his circumstances, all the while continuing to attempt to rule his life, never truly surrendering his life. And it's amazing just how long we can go living our life without God. Some of you may have close friends or close family members that you know of. Maybe you know people who seem to be blessed financially. It seems their families are the picture of contentment and health. 
However, rest assured, sin and sickness catch up with everyone. And Saul is at a point where he has reached the end of his rope. And Samuel the prophet is dead, so he has no one to speak to him on the Lord's behalf. And if you'll remember, it says that he, he reaches out to the Lord through the prophets. But if you remember, Saul slaughtered all the prophets. He, he slaughtered all the prophets and there was only one prophet who was left who, who had the, the Urim in his ephod and it was a way in which they would cast lots and God would give them direction. And he escaped to David. And so Saul is, is making an attempt to reach out to God and he's hearing no answer. He's simply alone. Now instantly, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've read much of the Bible... Verse 6 presents some questions. Certainly questions, if not problems. The Lord did not answer him. How does that work? Do we reach a point in our lives in which we've rejected the Lord so often that the Lord says enough and draws a line and that the Lord does not answer? I mean, consider... The words of Joel chapter 2 verse 32. You will recognize them from Paul's writings. They, they echo in Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I mean that's the God of the New Testament that we want to hold on to, right? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's a loving God. Everyone's got a chance. There's no doubt in my mind that Saul went through the mechanics of appealing to the Lord. But it would appear that his heart never opened one inch toward repentance and toward true faith. He had his own agenda. I want you to consider for a moment how scary is this for so many people in America today so many people who are familiar with the church and familiar with the gospel and familiar with the Bible. How many people have had a near-death experience or, or terrible circumstances in their life that's left them vulnerable to disease or divorce or some kind of desperate moment in which they have cried out to the Lord? Maybe they've even gone as far as to say, I'm going to follow Jesus in believer's baptism or I'm going to join a small group for at least for a period of time. But all the while, only seeking rescue from their circumstances, never offering God control of their lives, never truly surrendering. Pick back up in verse 8. Follow along as I read through Verse 14. See how this turns out for Saul. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. He and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. How he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, 
Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. It was April in 1945 and the telephone rang in the Fuhrer's bunker. The telephone was for Hitler. Joseph Goebbels, minister of propaganda for the Third Reich, was on the line and he was ecstatic. The reason? The news was that Franklin D. Roosevelt was dead. The problem was that Germany was caving in. The Allies were pressing from the West. The Russians from the East. Soon Berlin itself would crumble. But none of that mattered to Goebbels. For as he told Hitler, it is written in the stars. The last half of April will be the turning point for us. He was referring to two previous astrological predictions that had forecast the hardest blows for Germany during the first months of 1945, especially in the first part of April, but an overwhelming victory in the second half of the month. Unfortunately for Goebbels' horoscopes, Hitler committed suicide on April 30th. People will turn in desperation to any resource that they think will give them some kind of hope or some kind of direction. And that's what King Saul chose to do. If God wouldn't answer, he would use any means necessary to find relief from his fear and to find relief from his discomfort. This passage is we read it, for most of us as Americans, it brings up a lot of questions for us. You know, for many people, it brings up questions about, so what does this mean about palm readers and Ouija boards and that seance I went to that one time where we were trying to, you know, hear from someone who is dead? And just to summarize it real quickly... There's only one of two things that are taking place in these types of circumstances. Either you're being duped and swindled out of your money, and that's a real possibility, or actually demonic powers are at work. It doesn't take a scientist to realize that neither one of those are good. Right? And so neither are good options. The Bible regularly describes these practices. Listen to me, Christians. Not as futile. The Bible does not describe the occult as futile. The Bible instead describes these types of practices as evil or as pagan. God warned Israel not to use these practices. Not because they don't work, but because they are evil. And so... The biblical advice over and over again is stay away from the occult. Yes, there are evil powers that are at work within our world. Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. Read Ephesians 6. It's all about how we are to protect ourselves from the demonic and from the evil one who is real and at work. 
And if you don't believe that that is true, then you're missing out on an incredible part of the Christian faith in the way that we need protection from God in the midst of evil times. You can probably look back and realize that there have been moments in your life where in an extraordinary way you have sensed opposition and you have sensed demonic forces coming against you. Maybe it might be, as like one of my friends said, he said, I had like 12 to 15 flat tires within a series of about three months. He's like, everything in my life seemed to be breaking. Not to mention I was in a full flatline depression. This is one of my pastor friends here in town who planted one of the largest churches over the last 15 years. He talked about the way in which we need to come to realize that when extraordinary evil seems to be oppressing us, that we need the Lord and we need to seek His Spirit's work within us in an extraordinary way. Now, Saul does this twisted thing in which Who's he going to? Do you realize how laughable this story is? I can't hear from the Lord, so I'll go to Samuel. Who is Samuel speaking on the behalf of? The Lord. How could he possibly believe that he's going to hear any good news, any favorable news? But you see how twisted we become when we take our circumstances into our own hands when we write God out of our stories. We'll pick up in verse 15. And you'll see just how bad things become. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I've summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. What a stinging prophecy. God allows Samuel to deliver a message from the grave. In 1 Chronicles 10 verse 14 summarizes Saul's life and the results. Simply says, he did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. One theologian said it well. I think I have this for you on the screen, this quote. He said, Saul sought comfort but not guidance. And his unyielding heart was met by God's unyielding rejection. Does that sound overly harsh? God is a just God. It's impossible to be loving without being just. If that doesn't compute for you, talk with me about it afterwards. It's impossible to be loving without being just. 
when a crime is committed, there must be some type of sentence. Or the judge is not just. And in this moment, this quote is saying, this theologian is summarizing Saul's life in saying that God turned away from, uh, Saul turned away from God his entire life and toward the end of his life, God granted his request and gave him what he wanted. And it's the same for so many people today. What a difference between surrendering to Jesus as king, surrendering to Jesus as Lord and as Savior, and what a difference in that and merely asking Jesus to rescue us from our mistakes. I wonder how many followers of Jesus today show up on a Sunday morning very familiar with religion, with the hopes and expectations that they are earning some type of get out of hell free card. They're checking the box each Sunday, making sure that when that day comes, when their obituary will be read, that people will say they were a quote unquote good person and that they knew God. The problem with that is that that's not the gospel. Because if we only come to Jesus in order to rescue us from hell, but then we live the other six days of our life as if we are king of our lives, then we're looking to Jesus as if he were a servant or even slave to us. Jesus, come and rescue me at my beck and call. And Jesus says, no, I am not your slave and I am not your servant. I did come as a servant in order to serve you, but I gave my life as a ransom for many and I was raised from the grave. I defeated death and hell and now I reign as king. And he offers us the opportunity to know God by confessing our sin to him and by surrendering our life to him. Those are very different mindsets. If we stop this story here, it's an incredibly tragic tale. Not only for Saul, maybe even more so for his son Jonathan. Remember poor Jonathan? Man, if this were a movie, I think not only would we say it's a tragedy. Read chapter 31 and you'll see. Not only would we say it's a tragedy as King Saul goes down to the grave, but then as we see his son... Poor Jonathan, I think a tear would run down our face. Jonathan, who's been there for David, and not just for Jonathan, but for so many of Saul's army who are overrun by the Philistines, thousands of Israelites who go to their grave along with Saul. Now, as we round third base, head for home, think about what in the world does this have to do with us tomorrow? I said that this was a story of two contrasting men. We're not really going to see the flip side of the coin until next week as we look at David's life. But I want to fast forward and show you the difference in Saul's heart and David's heart. And we find David's heart in Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is one of my favorite psalms. David writes, and in it he says... I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? What an amazing question. From where does my help come? Remember the question last week that we looked at that David asked in Psalm 42? 
Why are you downcast, O my soul? And we talked about how that's an amazing question to ask ourselves on a daily basis whenever we're feeling anxiety or sadness or fear. Why are you downcast, O my soul? What another follow-up question. What an amazing follow-up question to ask. From where does my help come? Where am I looking for help as I face anxiety and fear and struggle? David goes on to write, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. David had come to experience a God who is powerful, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. A God who is protector at all times, a God who is always aware, always watching, a God who can be completely trusted. He does not sleep. He goes on to describe God as one who will keep us for all of eternity. Yes, we are faced with evil in this world, and we are faced with Satan and his demons But the story that is being written in our lives in this world is not the end of the story. Because God says, even when we face trials and circumstances, the truth of the gospel is this, Christian, that he will keep us for all of eternity. He will keep us in our going out and in our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The story of David and the story of Saul, two lives... Two lessons. One life lived for self with the appearance of religion, Saul. He made an attempt to go through the motions, but when the going got tough, he was not willing to trust God. Instead, who did he trust? He trusted himself. The other story is the life of David. A man who also, make no mistake about it, David sinned greatly, but who lived in relationship with God who surrendered his life and his authority under the sovereignty of a greater king, King Jesus. So, as we consider this story for our own lives, church, in what ways are you like Saul? In what ways are you like Saul? How do you try to use God in order to bring your own comfort to your life? but not guidance in all things. Have you truly given Jesus all of life, your time, your talents, your treasures, your gifts, your finances, all of it? Because this will be your legacy. Think about it. Your time, your talents and your gifts, your treasures, that will be your legacy. The way in which you spend those resources that God has given to you. Do you really think that you can take just one or two or five or even 10% of those things and come up with your own plan 
and live a life that would bring greater contentment and greater joy than the life that Jesus has for you? When he says, if you will trust me with 100% of all of those things, with all of your time and all of your talents and all of your treasures, that's what Jesus is asking for. This story is an incredible call to the church in the Western world to examine our faith. The church in the Western world is in real danger of falling victim to what I've called the Saul syndrome. Using God in order to gain our own desires. Will Mancini has consulted with hundreds of phenomenal churches. And Will says that the functional Great Commission that the Western church operates by. So the Great Commission is what Jesus gave us. Go and make disciples. Everyone. All of us. All followers of Jesus. Not just pastors. Not just staff members or deacons or elders. Everyone. As you go, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Will Mancini says... The functional great commission of the Western church is this. Go therefore and make worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups, teaching them to give a few hours of their week toward volunteering. Let me say that again. It says the functional great commission of the Western church. In other, in other words, what we're living out, go and make worship attenders. Go and make religious people on Sundays. Baptizing them in the name of small groups. In other words, convincing them that, that if they get in a little group with some other individuals that they've done enough, maybe giving a few hours of their week toward volunteering. Church, Jesus didn't say to his church, be great leaders, be great nonprofits. Be great 501c3s. He didn't say go and make great volunteers. He said go and make disciples. And disciples are people who on a regular and daily basis surrender their lives wholly and completely to Jesus. And say, Jesus, all that I have and all that I am is yours. Use me. My heart is yours. I need you. I think if there's anything that we need to be reminded of in a religious culture, we need to be reminded that Jesus doesn't want our sacrifice. He wants our hearts. The foundation of this church, the name of this church, is, is built off of a passage of Scripture in which Jesus said, quoted from the Old Testament, He said, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. I'd lived in Memphis before. I knew that this was a city that was filled with legalism, filled with religion, filled with people who do the Sunday morning church routine. They'll drive all over the place in order to find the best programs for their families. All the while, living their weeks completely separate from the gospel. Siloed lives. Jesus says, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. How do you get mercy? You get mercy when someone is in such relationship 
such love, so passionate for someone else that they're willing to show mercy. Jesus says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want mercy. The only way to get mercy is when you are so passionate for someone that you are willing to walk in obedience because you love them. Love my wife. I'd do anything for her. She doesn't, it's not a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours relationship. No. Mercy. And Jesus desires that we would walk in relationship with him. He wants a relationship with us. I wonder how many of you are here today and you've been living with what I've described as the Saul syndrome. You've looked to God for religion and you've believed that if you check those boxes off, if you give some money towards God and if you worship on a regular basis, maybe even part of a small group, maybe you've even been baptized into a church. But your hope is that you're doing your part so that God will do His. I wonder how many of you have gone to Jesus because in a desperate moment you needed Him to rescue you from a circumstance, but you've never surrendered your life wholeheartedly to Him. Jesus doesn't want religion and he doesn't promise to rescue you from your circumstances. What he offers is relationship. Jesus says that every one of us have gone astray. We've turned away from him. We've written him out of our story that we've sinned against God. And the cross reminds us and declares to us that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The scriptures say if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. You say, what's so important about confessing with your mouth? What's so important about knowing in our hearts? Well, you can date a girl all your life. You can even move in with her, right? But there comes a moment in time where you open up that ring box and you get down on one knee and you propose and that leads to what? A wedding. And you stand before a minister and before God and when you put that ring on, it says legally and before everyone, these two are one. Like something has taken place. A commitment has happened that shouldn't be torn apart. And there comes a moment in our life where we quit dating God And we come to a point of surrender in which we say, Jesus, I need you to save me. I can't do this on my own. I want to give my life to you. And the scriptures say that in that moment when we turn our hearts over to him, there's no perfect formula for it, no perfect language, but when we say, Jesus, I need you to save me. Please forgive me. In that moment, the scriptures say that we are adopted as a child of the King. And that we are secure in Christ. And that we are in relationship with God the Father. And that we are forever forgiven and loved. If you don't know Jesus, talk with a friend who invited you here. Talk with me or one of the other elders. Talk with your missional community leader. We'd love for you to know Jesus. To be baptized. To follow him. To tell your friends and your family and everyone who's around you. I don't care who knows. 
In fact, I want everyone to know I am a follower of Jesus. I believe he knows how to run my life better than I do. I need him to save me from my sins. I need him to give me eternal life. I need him to be the one who will keep me forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story, a reminder of the weight of our lives, a reminder that God, we have a choice to make and who is going to be the author of our story. God, I pray that you might show us ways in which we, just like Saul, try to use you in order to rescue us from our circumstances and give us comfort. And God, I pray that by your Spirit, you might give us strength to surrender our hearts to you daily in order to walk in obedience, in order to walk in joy, in order to walk in contentment that can only come by your Spirit. Jesus, do your work in us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.